hello and welcome back to Open Disclosure. Today we have Trevor Boissonneau on our podcast today. Yeah, right? Yeah, that's pretty close. <laughs> okay. And uh, the topic of discussion today is going to be along the lines of criminal justice in the news and the new Bill C-83. Um, first off, Trevor, uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Um, I'm a, um, I study criminal justice at Nipson University. I'm currently in uh, my fourth year. Uh, although I'm looking at um, doing graduate studies uh, following, uh, related to obviously criminal justice, but uh, more specifically into um, biological factors regard, uh, relating to sex offenders. Hmm, cool, cool. Uh, what made you want to decide to do that? Uh, well, um, sex offenders currently are kind of the magnum opus um, in in. In criminal justice, or at least in community corrections, mm-hmm. uh, given that they have one of the highest recidivism rates uh, among um, populations. Cool. Yeah, makes sense. So, considering that that's an area that's of interest to you, um, recently in the news we had Bill C eighty three, which is reported to end solitary confinement in Canada and has been making its way through Parliament. What exactly is this bill, and what changes will this bill bring to the correction services? Uh, so, Bill C eighty three is. Um, it's, it's an act to amend uh, the correction services. Now, to be clear, it's only, uh, it only will operate on in federal corrections. Okay. Um, so provincial, uh, at least as far as my understanding of the bill. Um, the, it's, it's currently in its second reading uh, in the Senate. It's made it through the House of Commons, mm-hmm. at least uh, on today's date. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> during its second reading, they, the Senate had requested a... Uh, Committee be formed to uh, discuss further the uh, some of the issues uh, regarding the bill. Um, so you're right; uh, it's the whole purpose is to end solitary confinement, as that's mm-hmm. typically seen as uh, an inhumane form of punishment today. Mm-hmm. All right, and so since well before the podcast, we we mentioned that uh, the bill is kind of a hot button issue within corrections today, and uh, why do you think that is? Like, what makes it so controversial having, well, solitary confinement as one of the issues? <clears throat> well, uh, the problem is, is that there's a pretty valid argument on both sides of the issue, um, as, is, as is the case with most uh, most hot-button issues. Um, mm-hmm. The, you know, primarily the first thing that's wrong with it is you have to think about the safety of the correctional officers. Yeah. Um, there are a population in, in the justice services that are very significantly underrepresented. Um, uh, it's not very often you hear about you know a correctional officer being injured in his line of duty, whereas mm-hmm. you, it's it's fairly you know, frequent when you hear about police officers. Okay, so basically, what are your thoughts on solitary confinement? Then, do you think it's uh, it can be beneficial, or do you think it's generally just not a good way of dealing with inmates? <clears throat> well. Um, I've, I've done a, a, sig- a significant amount of, of reading into this topic and uh, the, the psychological aspect is clear. It's, it's just, it's not a, a good environment to keep, uh, to keep a person. Um, mm-hmm. there, uh, there are reports um, through various studies um, of hypersensitivity in the inmates. Um, for example, even something uh, in, in one case, um, which I read, the, the inmate was so aggravated by the sound of water running through the pipes every time that it would, he would go into a fit of rage. And this That's was, crazy. Uh, up until uh, an incident in which he found himself in solitary confinement, um, 
this particular inmate um, was you know, typically of good behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just his um, kind of his stint in solitary that uh, that kind of set him off. That, that kind of set him off. How did he end up in solitary? Uh, if I recall, <laughs> it was uh, over a dispute in a basketball game. <laughs> um, if I recall, uh, I, it's it's uh, interesting though. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so you, so you, did you say that you thought it was a good idea, or not? It's not really a good idea, hey? See that, Typically, see, or see that's the issue. I'm kind of on the fence about it, uh, in the sense that a lot solitary confinement is used as a way to protect other inmates and and or correctional officers mm-hmm. from problem inmates. Uh, the issue is when it's overused, uh, in which historically that's been the case. Um, so. It, less so in Canada, uh, but you know there are cases in the United States where uh, inmates have spent well over um, two to three months in mm-hmm. solitary, yeah. straight with little to no human contact. Yeah, that's kind of a long time to be not communicating with anybody at all. Well, <laughs> yeah, but I can see where it would be like necessary for safety, right? If it's going to be dangerous to have other people around them, then probably a better option than the alternative, but definitely a hard area to well, <laughs> say one thing or the other, right? And, and you, have be, you have to be clear about uh, the Ministry of Community Safety and Correctional Services mandate. Um, all right, excuse me, the uh, federal corrections. Their mandate is um, primarily the safety of, um, of inmates and, and or the community. And then secondary is uh, rehabilitation of the offender. Mm-hmm. So it, that that portion of the argument makes makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. So if if your issue is with you know safety of corrections or correctional officers, then of course it it makes sense to eliminate the problem. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, Person, do you think that having this new bill coming out is that a, a good thing or a bad thing, or does it depend on how they implement it themselves? <laughs> well, I, I think I think this is the issue that the the Senate is is raising that the, it's it's a bit too swift. Like there isn't a uh, an auxiliary plan or an auxiliary policy in place um, in, in order to replace it, and mm-hmm. um, so that that can lead to some real issues. Mm-hmm. Do you think there could be more? There needs to be like more research done for it, or do you think it's just something of need to look it over more carefully? Well, I think the literature is clear um, that it's it's detrimental to to the inmates. And there's, but that said, I don't think there's any reasonable replacement, mm-hmm. uh, at least uh, at this point in time, with uh, the means that they have. Okay, so it's kind of a it's an option that's on the table, but it might not be the best option. But it seems to be the only one that's kind of available. <laughs> yeah, more or less, yeah, <laughs> to some degree, right? Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> That's fair. Um, do you know of any other countries that currently have something similar to this in place already, or do you think that uh, do you think that these kind of rules will actually benefit inmates oh, at the end of the day, or society as a whole, or both? Uh, at this time, no, I'm not aware of uh, any countries that have, have removed it entirely. Uh, I know many of the European nations have uh, limited its use, mm-hmm. um, so only very severe cases of misbehavior can uh, can result in. Solitary confinement. And has that? Do you know if that's led to any kind of improvement with their systems, or it's it's hard to say. Um, <clears throat> as you know, research is a bit slow, particularly when <laughs> yes. you're when you're dealing with um, social or psychological aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you typically need 
um, more than one study to be done in order to have a relatively clear picture. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time and effort and all that fun stuff to get those done. So that's right. It's a very like almost niche kind of area to be researching, right? That so <laughs> there, the criminal justice is just so broad in, in that uh, it's, it's not it's not necessarily the focus currently. Mm -hmm. but. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. <clears throat> um, assuming that solitary confinement becomes a thing of the past, not that it will ever, but you know, just keeping that in mind, um, what are uh, what are the alternatives to solitary confinement? Can you think of anything like we kind of touched that you? This is not really a good alternative, but is there anything that could be a good alternative? <clears throat> well, in in my limited experience with the federal correctional system, the entire the entire system is built around. Um, small housing units of inmates. Mm -hmm. So if you can't remove a problem inmate from that small, almost kind of, um, I hesitate to use the word community, but that, that small <laughs> yes, community, yeah. then there's there's not a whole lot of things. And you know, the literature is clear that if you put a lot of antisocial behavior together in that, if you remove uh, the, problem, the problematic inmates and put them into a place with other problematic inmates, um, that's just it's it's going it's going to be kind of productive. You kind of like exacerbate the problem even further, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fair enough. <clears throat> so, what do you think is the next big issue to tackle or put more research into when it comes to corrections or criminology or criminal theory or any of those similar topics? Along with that. <laughs> well, if you ask me personally, um, the the next big thing I think is in biosocial theories. Mm -hmm. um, what exactly is biosocial theory? Well, um, in its early roots, or uh, early days, criminology, um, there was a school of thought in, in, um, in that you could find biological markers that you know, determine criminality. Mm -hmm. The issue with it was that it led to a, a segue into eugenics. And uh, mm -hmm. you don't have to uh, have a very detailed discussion of eugenics to, to realize that it's not exactly a place where you want to be. Mm -hmm. you want to be. Um, biosocial theory is... In a sense, uh, the evolved form of that, where you're taking into uh, taking into account uh, a lot of the social aspects as well as some of the biological ones. Mm -hmm. um, so, for instance, you might uh, you might look at uh, income inequality as a result of biological factors. So, somebody who's prone to aggression mm -hmm. is far less likely to um, do well in, in school, far less likely to get a job. Yes, yeah, fair or, enough. Yeah, yeah, limit social mobility. Mm -hmm. Do you think that could, like, biosocial kind of factors could help play a role in law enforcement? Like, or is that kind of like a touch-and-go area, touchy area? <laughs> see, see, again, that's, yeah. <laughs> that, that's the problem. Um, as soon as you start qualifying certain biological factors as criminogenic, you're, you're, you're already treading on some pretty thin ice. Mm -hmm. That said, I think that there are certain traits, um, like, for instance, the, mm -hmm. uh, the aggression that I mentioned earlier. Uh, people that are prone to aggression, typically it's genetic. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's not as a result. So like not not an environment. Totally, one hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as <clears throat> some of the some of the literature I've I've reviewed is concerned, uh, it's it's a very it's on a sliding scale essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, you're looking at how certain certain social factors um, impact on somebody and how somebody's base psychology impacts upon those social factors and it, it, they kind of work together in, yeah. in a way to, to guide that person. I suppose you could kind of use them as like risk markers in a sense, rather than having That's, them as like determining 
whether they're going to do something bad or not, in, exactly. in a sense. Yeah. Uh, currently in, in Ontario, um, we use the LSIOR as a risk needs assessment. And uh, what, what that is, is it determines... What does that stand for? LS, what was that? LSIOR? Yeah, it's <laughs> uh, Literary Statistical Inventory, Ontario Revised. Oh, okay. Very, very, uh, doesn't yeah. tell you exactly what it does at all. <laughs> no. Uh, basically, it, it, it helps your probation and parole officer determine how many visits a week they need to, or how many visits a month they need to do with you, um, what type of programming that, you know, that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, it also helps determine whether, like, um, and I hesitate to say this, but how much work that's required to, you know, be put into this person. Yeah, to keep them on the right track, I yeah, suppose, exactly. yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I can see it being used for for markers, right? Just to make sure that everybody's, or not make sure everybody's doing something, but to see who might have a higher risk of falling, help falling into trouble, right? Yeah. So, but yeah, along those lines, though, if there's <clears throat> if there's anything in, uh, I guess, criminal justice system today, like we have a lot of machine learning and stuff like that. We have like the debate over like artificial intelligence, things like that, like where people can well, police forces in particular can compile information and make predictions based on certain uh, criteria that they set. Like, what do you think about that kind of stuff? Like, is that far too far reaching into people's private lives or is that fair game or what? It, it depends on the context um, of the information that they're, that they're, you know, they're receiving. In, in criminal theory, there's uh, one, of the, one of the larger kind of umbrella theories is called labeling theory, mm-hmm. where you look at how Labels either set by the individual themselves or by others um, cause you to act in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So, if, for example, uh, if if you label a child as a um, as a misbehaved like a misbehaved child, mm-hmm. they're far more likely to um, to misbehave. Yeah, fair enough. If you've already been labeled with that criteria, you're probably going to so, be more likely to follow through with it, right? That's right. So, <laughs> you know, following that line of thinking, uh, if, if they start compiling data on on individuals and they can make a case that it seems like this person might be a criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, you might just be imposing a label and this person, you know, might act in such a way that might make, turn them into a criminal. Mm-hmm. Uh, when in, in actual fact, they probably wouldn't have um, done anything criminal in the first place. Fair enough. Do you think there's any, um, anything that can be used in like a tech era that would make things better, safer, or easier to predict. Like there was recently, and I think it was, it was a California city. I can't remember which city exactly, but they banned the use of uh, artificial intelligence, I believe, and video monitoring for governments altogether. Like they're not allowed to track or view anybody. And they had a predictive system they were using that was telling them what areas would have higher risks of theft and things like of the, of that nature. And so in, in turn, they would send police cars out to those areas and monitor those areas rather than you know their normal way of policing, I guess. Well, we we kind of we we see the an older, more outdated version of that yeah. uh, being being done even currently, mm-hmm. uh, where if you police more heavily areas that are more prone to crime, uh, is that area more prone to crime as a result of there being more policing and therefore more crime? Is, <laughs> Chicken is, or the egg scenario? <laughs> so, okay, exactly. So is there, uh, and you know in. In areas where there is more crime, you're going to have um, lower income families, which mm-hmm. is known to be a, um, a precursor to crime, mm-hmm. uh, you, which could further exacerbate the situation. So you have to, mm-hmm. uh, 
I, I can be see careful why, with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of see why they wouldn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering because they have like when they explain how the system works, it's actually using data that was amalgamated prior to them using the system. So I was wondering the, the big argument from opposition of users of systems like that is that it could be biased to old trends, right? Old criminal trends. But then proponents of the system are saying, well, because it aggregates data in real time as well as using historical data, that it corrects itself over time. But I'm wondering if that's even really possible. If they're more heavily policing an area, that area is far more likely to have a higher crime rate because mm-hmm. there are more police there. Not to say that there is more crime or less crime done in other neighborhoods. I'm just saying that if you cast a wider net, you're going to catch more fish. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and then there's also, I think there's also a case of, at least in criminal justice system, that they've been trying to use, again, like uh, technology to apply sentences on, on, on criminals, convicted criminals of the, at the time. And some people are saying that that's not a good idea because it can add bias again into the system and it kind of fits into that whole like social issue, right? And that is there, do you think that it's safe to start going that route or is it just too, too touchy to go? <laughs> well, well I, I, I read uh, recently an article um, out of Latvia where there, or it may have been Estonia, it was one of the Baltics anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and they uh, recently started using machine learning um, to deal with, as judges to deal with um, kind of minor offenses. Mm-hmm. And you're right, most, most, of the, uh, most of the pushback from the criminal justice community there has been that um, as, even if this, if this thing makes a decision, uh, our current system is based on, uh, based on a system of precedence. So uh, it, they don't have that flexibility to, or the malleability to correct their decisions because each decision, decision is binding on, on, the, the, on the next decision. The next previous. Yeah. <clears throat> Fair enough. Hmm. But I feel like if you use the system, uh, like had the system so that it took into account the precedents from before, it might be beneficial. Uh, but like, I'm not sure how that would really play out. <laughs> Anyways, but um, it's just, it's interesting to see that you can apply these like social <clears throat> characteristics that can be good, but can also be negative as well because it can enhance bias rather than get rid of it, right? And then it also has that point where you were saying, if you tell somebody they're going to do something bad, chances are they're probably going to do something bad. <laughs> so do you think there's a way that we can work it so that we're able to use these identifiers and still not like imply bias and force people into like these categories? Or is that something that's kind of like unavoidable in the long term? Well, in a perfect world... <laughs> Our police force and our justice system would be bias-free, but it, unfortunately, that's just that's impossible. There, mm-hmm. It's impossible to remove any personal bias or any um, any bias at all from. Uh, I mean, you can do the best you can with sensibility training, interpersonal training, and making sure that your police officers aren't uh, and, and proper screening before uh, recruits become police officers. Mm-hmm. There's there's no it's hard and fast. <laughs> yeah. There's really no hard and fast way of. Uh, of sorting that I'm out, sorting yeah. That out, yeah. What do you think about body cameras? I think it's a great idea. Do you think they work really well, or? In fact, every one of the police officers I've spoken to, uh, in regards to them, say it's a great idea. Yeah. Um, kind of keeps you accountable, right? Well, and 
Then you have proof, too. <laughs> exactly. Um, the, the only issue... So I attended a, uh, a conference with the OPP commissioner two years ago, and uh, that the same issue was raised uh, regards to body cameras, and he, he was on board as well. The only issue is storage. Oh, yeah, how much data you can store. Exactly. Yeah. It, uh, uh, the current projections are astronomical, how much it would cost the taxpayers. And I guess how much, how long are you supposed to keep these pieces of data for, too? It could become another issue, too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, some criminal cases can take years. Yeah. Uh, all like I wonder if you're keeping that kind of data is there is there supposed to be like a time limit on is it going to be like once the case is over they get rid of the information or are they going to keep it for future like that is also another area because I feel like there's going to be people that are going to be like well you can't hold that information for too long because that becomes an infringement uh, privacy that kind of stuff but then at the other end it's like well what if something happens again down the road and now we don't have proof of what happened back in you know 10 years ago yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> becomes a little complicated. <laughs> it's, it's particularly an issue for people that, are, um, that have a successful conditional discharge, for instance, um, mm -hmm. where um, you know previous convictions aren't held, uh, they aren't held accountable so long as they are successful in their, in their conditions. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if that, if they have access to, you know, how this person reacted in the, in the previous altercation, then, you know, perhaps the police officers will be more show more initiative to violence all right well i must say it was nice having you on here today trevor it's interesting getting to talk about all that stuff um i hope we get to do it again at some point with some more interesting topics in the future all right thank you yeah have a good one thank you all right and that's all we have for today for open disclosure i hope you guys enjoyed that don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media, and uh, we hope you'll uh, join us again next time. Have a good one.